Many of us have seen the statistics. Over the last decade, there's been a mass exodus of people leaving traditional religious communities for atheism, for do-it-yourself spiritualities, or for utter and complete nihilism. The popular term for those who don't claim to practice any organized religious faith is called nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And there is a massive subset of nuns that we can call duns, D-O-N-E-S. These are people who've grown up in the church, maybe even went to Christian school or college, and sometime in their early adult years, they walk out on it all and say, I'm done. There's all sorts of reasons, some of them entirely legitimate for people's disenchantment with their experience of Christianity. Deconstruction can quickly turn to devastation, a meaning crisis that can rob people of their very will to live. But that doesn't have to be the end of the story. Deconstruction can lead to reconstruction. In today's episode, we're going to hear a reconstruction story. My guest in today's conversation is Rick Gutterson. Rick is a husband, father, and an impact leadership consultant with years of experience as an executive director over a successful grief support nonprofit organization in Detroit, Michigan. He has a master's in social work from Wayne State University with a concentration in nonprofit leadership. Rick's life is now filled with clarity about his meaning and purpose, sharing his life to bless the world and finding spiritual nourishment in Christian community. But if you would have known him like I knew him years ago and saw the depths of despair he reached, you probably wouldn't have imagined that the path towards reconstruction would even be possible. I hope you enjoy my conversation today with my dear friend, Rick Gutterson. Well, Rick, this is such a blast to get to do this together, man. Thanks for taking the time tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I've been looking forward to, to connecting with you. And uh, yeah, this is going to be a, a great time. Yeah. So uh, I, I said this in the uh, intro, but, but Rick and I grew up together. Rick was one of my groomsmen and my wedding. And uh, so we, we go back, we go back a long ways and we're going to try our best to not just crack open a bunch of inside jokes and, <laughs> and reminiscing together. That'd be a, quite a podcast, <laughs> just an hour of inside jokes that no one can connect with no. and us cracking up and having tears rolling down our eyes. That's right. I, you know, actually, I might listen to that actually. I know. You know what, as, for as many, um, for as many inside stories as we have about our church and Christian school experience, there will be a lot. There would be lots of people that can relate to them. So maybe a few will come out, but that's all right. Well, Rick, maybe maybe <laughs> we could start. Uh, of course, I know you. We go back a long time. Maybe you could start by introducing a little bit of who you are to to people listening to this podcast that have never heard of you, never never met you before. Maybe we could start a little bit by just telling people about the work you've done over the past five years or so. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, I. I think to start off, you know, 2009, uh, I live in Metro Detroit area and 2009 was a, a really tough time in this area. We, you know, I worked in the automotive industry actually and uh, working in, in sales. And so the economy across the country really w went down the hill, especially in Metro Detroit with the automotive. And so I found myself not uh, employed, but also trying to figure out what to do and, and kind of at a crossroads career-wise wanting to start over. And so um, I ended up 
uh, kind of on this this leadership journey of discovering who I am and what I needed to be doing. Ended up serving and doing a two-year ministry internship at my church, working with small groups and recovery. Um, and ultimately, I went back to school, got my um, undergrad in social work, and ended up at an organization um, that served people in, who had experienced loss, and so doing peer-based grief support. And during that period, uh, that was in 2014, I also went back to grad school and got my master's in social work leadership. Um, so I uh, really was able to take that same heart for grieving people, but to, to start to implement things on an organizational level, level to really increase our impact and grow our capacity and serve people on that level. So it was a weird kind of hybrid to be able to, on one side, really invest in people's hearts. Um, and then five minutes later, switch on, turn on a spreadsheet and look at, you know, financial ratios and financial, financial forecasting and things like that. But when you're, when you have a heart for people, you're able to really see that it's just a tool. And so learning those kinds of things, uh, allowed me to really, I think, um, serve more people. And it was really, really awesome to do that. But really my, my heart is to help people heal and, uh, to grow, um, emotionally and spiritually. Um, but helping people process grief and loss. Uh, it was a pleasure to be there at that organization for five and a half years and got to do a lot of speaking and training and um, teaching, running support groups, facilitating. And uh, it's been a, a pleasure to see the lives that were touched. Yeah. So, so far, aside from maybe the career change out of the automotive industry and into doing nonprofit leadership and grief care, there's not a whole lot of your story right now that sounds too strange. But I do think for people that, like myself, that that have known you your entire life. We grew up together. I think people that knew you, especially in your 20s, and they see the sort of things that you're doing right now with your life might be even the most optimistic people, right? Might might be a bit surprised by this. Now, you know, people have heard a bit of my theological and spiritual backstory on this podcast. Um I haven't gone into great detail, but I think there's enough details I've shared that, that people kind of piece together a little bit of where I came from. And the funny thing is there's there's people that listen to this podcast. They're on, you know, maybe totally divergent sides when they hear this, my stories, and they hear some of my background. There's people that go, man, I grew up in charismatic, Pentecostal, or even just like, you know, your general 80s, 90s evangelical youth group, and I can totally relate to that facet of your story. And then there's other people that they hear things that I've shared, and they go, and they've been Christians, they grew up in the church, they were even in evangelical churches, and they hear these things, they go, you went to Benny Hinn Crusades as like a nine-year-old? <laughs> like... <laughs> You know, um, don't every doesn't every Christian growing up as a nine year old go to a Benny Hinn crusade? Totally, at least that's what I thought, right? <laughs> and so, and then there's people yeah. like that that go, I just can't even fathom this world that you lived in. But this is a shared world that we both inhabited, and having grown up in the same setting together, I think it'd be interesting from your perspective to hear some of the experiences in that particular stream in that Christian community that were, you actually found that maybe as you got older and uh, maybe broadened your interactions with people, not just Christians outside of our particular stream or denomination, but you started interacting with all sorts of different kinds of people. What were things maybe about your past and what you grew up in that you think people could actually relate to? And what are some of the things about your upbringing, your spiritual 
formation that as you've shared them with people, you've realized maybe this is a lot more um, unique <laughs> than what I knew yeah. it was. You know, I I grew up uh, in church, just like a, a lot of people. I started attending the church I grew up in at age four, and I went there until, you know, I was 23 or 24. For, so 20 years of my life, the most formative period of my life was at this church, and that's all I knew. And so, um, you know, and as kind of in conjunction with that, I also went to the Christian school that was there, started there in sixth grade. So I was a little bit uh, later going on, a lot of my friends was already were already going to the school and I wasn't. So it was kind of a an interesting transition to that as a upper elementary student or middle school student. Um, I, I, th- I think some of the things that people can relate with I th- I potentially are, you know, these annual youth conventions. I, I'm reminded of Acquire the Fire. Oh, yeah. And, you know, every summer how you're challenged to, you know, to be sold out and you buy all these things and you have to throw away your CDs every Did year. Did you put them in the coffin? When they pass the coffin you know, around. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how many times I rebought all of my mid '90s grunge music. Uh, probably four <laughs> or five different, uh, no doubt, albums or Pearl Jam. Or <laughs> it's a lot of wasted money. I could have been tithing that money, right? Uh, so um, you know, but I, I grew up in the church, like like I said, and I um, uh, after I graduated, uh, my, you and I led worship in the youth group for quite a few years. You know, lugging the the really crappy gear back and forth out of your car and um, all the crazy antics that you do as youth group uh, pastors and youth group uh, worship leaders to, to get kids to connect with God. I'm reminded of a uh, very fortunate incident revolving flash paper and letting your <laughs> sins burn up. Uh, and also a time where people had to write down their sins on a sheet of paper, crumple them up, and then were instructed to throw them at the band, which I was leading that that uh, that evening. And so I was just being pummeled with a crumpled up pieces of paper as I'm playing a guitar going, this can't this can't be real. Someone just hit but, me with lust. Yes, exactly. Why did I just get hit in the face with that? <laughs> so, um, you know, in our church, I think the, the best way you could describe it as far as in those later days was uh, kind of an unhealthy, charismatic church um, where there's a lot of showmanship in doing things that were um, geared towards increasing, um, you know, people who are coming and doing revival services, but it, it was kind of manipulated. I don't think everything was, but sometimes it definitely was. Uh, it's a very performance-based Christianity that I, I grew up believing that really shaped uh, the dark periods of my life. Um, and I, I, I always imagine now uh, this sliding scale of Christianity. On the one extreme, you've got the on-fire um pendulum yeah, that and, was the term, and the other right? exactly the other side is backslidden and so your your goal in, as a christian is to continually push towards the on fire side and you're always being evaluated as your christian uh as a christian for it and i didn't i couldn't articulate it back then but i looked at back at it now is you know it, that was really formative and that's that was the kind of underlying theology that it was taught at every level of that church and so you believe that your performance is what dictates um how close or how far you are from god and that that um that led to a lot of dark periods in my life at some point because i i fully bought into that and i was like well, i don't i don't want to be a part of that so the the um uh, the challenging part is when you grow up in a church that doesn't teach you the unconditional love and the grace. Um, you know, when when things go wrong and things go bad uh, and you get hurt or you experience hurt, you don't have any of that to fall back on. And and so that was ultimately the challenge is when you're looking for something as a young adult and it's not there. You're like, what have I been holding back um, for for this? And so my a big part of my journey was going, if, if this is who God is and, and um, 
who his people are and they're the ones that are creating hurt, then I don't want anything to do with him or the church. And, and, and then you go, well, what, what have I been not experiencing? It has to be better than this. And that, that's, uh, ended up being a very destructive path in my life, but I didn't know it at the time. I just knew that it couldn't be worse than what I had experienced in the church. I haven't thought about that in quite some time. That sort of sliding scale between, uh, are you either backslidden or totally on fire, totally sold out? I think it's interesting. It's like, as I even take a moment to reflect on that, I think about how humans have this innate sense in which we can discern where we're at in a sort of social hierarchy. We pick up on these things really, really well, which is why it makes, it oftentimes makes like the experiences that we have right now of being in isolation and quarantine, mm -hmm. they can, these sorts of feelings of anxiety and depression emerge because we don't have any of the same signals that we normally have in a workplace or a school of where we kind of sit the acceptance pecking order right mm -hmm. but i think it's I, I i guess i've never really thought about how i'm glad you bring it up i haven't really thought about how being in an atmosphere that your status is dependent on these sorts of extreme performative acts of worship or devotion how feeling like you have to muster that up in order to gain acceptance, how that pattern can be really, really destructive over the long haul. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the the check mark indicators to then show how quote unquote good of a Christian you are, um, you, okay, so public displays of worship are a priority then. So if I dance more or I get one of those amazing uh, dance flags that you you spin and throw and uh which half of the people flags, right now know, know yeah, what exactly. you're talking about the other half yep. are like you use flags in church you know oh my goodness the pillow the pillow of glory with the crown on it you know <laughs> um so if i can do more things like that or even especially go up front and be you have your know, hands laid on and, and be prayed for and be slain in the spirit and all these different charismatic kind of things and again i want to specify that like this was an unhealthy version of that. I th I've seen amazing charismatic churches, and, right. but my personal experience with that was very uh, negative and unhealthy. Um, but the point of it is, is it's all about visibility. So those members of the church who had public um, uh, acts that people could notice were deemed more spiritually mature. And so when you think that, then the opposite happens. If you're not feeling spiritually mature, you're not feeling like doing those things, then you must be a bad Christian, especially in youth when you're so... Um, drawn by your feelings to do things, right? So I'm not up to it this day. Well, you didn't go up and dance like you've done the last six Sunday mornings. Is everything okay? Are you backsliding? Mm -hmm. And then you get this pressure from people like, okay, I guess I could go fake it and dance if it gets this person off my back. So it really is a, a kind of a scary precedent that you get taught at a young age when the leadership of a church and the pastoral care team isn't aware that they're driving this performance-based Christianity inside the church, that your spiritual maturity and your significance in God's sight is driven by what you do and how you act. That's a very dangerous theology that was, was I don't think overtly preached, but it was very much in the underlying nature of the actions of the, the church. It's built into the practices, right? I mean, that's so much yeah. of, this wasn't a word we ever used growing up, but um, it's in the liturgy. The liturgy is the practice of worship. And mm -hmm. you pick up these things um, in way, way more deep, there's much deeper ways we pick up on these messages than just someone explaining them to us, explaining the proposition, well, this is what I'm telling you is the truth. We pick up on it in all sorts of ways. This is why 
you know, just as I always think of this example too, you know, the even in even in things that aren't church related, the the sort of liturgy of an NFL football game, and and how your pat how you've developed this pattern week in and week out of standing and placing your hand over your heart when the national anthem's happening. And so when one person doesn't do that, right, when you have someone take a knee, and I don't want to get into the politics of that, but just thinking of it as a maybe a performative act of worship, it's really similar. One person takes a knee and it's like, whoa, 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 you don't, you don't do that. And, mm-hmm. and nobody's actually explained the why or the why not. You've just had this pattern because of this practice of worship ingrained in you where you see this thing as valuable. And so when you go through whatever your church experience is, is, it's not even oftentimes the things that people have explicitly told you. You know, I don't know how many times people maybe just, and you heard it in general messages in chapels and church and revival meetings, but I don't know how many times anybody just walked up to me and they said, hey, you're not, you're not on fire enough for the Lord. But you kind of, you learned how to pick up on those, those signals and in really subtle ways. So... Obviously, there's there's those sorts of things. Every church, every Christian institution has unique quirks, right? I mean, a flag, mm-hmm. someone using a flag in worship, that that's like probably just a quirk, right? You know, it's it's a personal preference. For some, it's incredibly meaningful. For others, they don't see the meaning behind that. You know, some people love to just do Hillsong <laughs> over and over. <laughs> Right, which was our experience. All, For those nothing... who know the Hillsong stuff, I was uh, informed by the worship leader of the adult, the adult church time, <laughs> that I had the Marty role. I think I think his name was Marty Martin. Marty Sampson. Um, yeah, there we go. Which was confusing. And so cause... every time he led a song, that was my song. Uh, it was like, oh, okay, so am I like playing a character in like a Broadway production? Like it's a role playing your lines. Or am I allowed to sing other songs than, than just his songs? <laughs> yeah, I remember I had a, that now. a special connection with, with Marty Sampson. When a new Hill song came out, you were looking for the Marty tracks. Because that's, that's <laughs> oh, the one. track four, seven, and nine. I got three on this <laughs> one. You got to start practicing these right away. <laughs> so, I mean, those those in and of themselves, every, every place has their own quirks. And, you know, that it, it's funny to laugh about. You know, I don't know if those were particularly damaging spiritual experiences, but every church Slightly. has that. <laughs> But then there's also the sort of more malevolent incidents of brokenness that take place, and they they can become determining factors in driving people away from Christian community, away from their faith altogether. When they go into a process of deconstruction, these sorts of really malevolent experiences that they have um, can be really powerful in making people go, I'm done with this altogether. And, And truth be told, we contribute to that too when in any Christian community that we're a part of. I mean, I think we could both look back on maybe some of our teenage and college years and, and think of some people that our beha- behaviors towards them were hurtful and harmful. And so, you know, this isn't like playing a victim card because we all participate in it. But I, I'm curious from your own journey, Rick, like these sorts of harmful experiences, whether they were the subtle messages you picked up on that you had to perform to get people's approval and be, you know, do these, uh, you know, super spiritual religious acts in order to be accepted into a community, or whether it was maybe some of the, the really actually dark stuff that, that did take place, and we don't have to unpack that, but the dark stuff that did take place that was really, really horrific and hurtful. Um, I, I 
rarely blame anyone that has experienced maybe some of the stuff we've seen and been a part of and just go, when they go, I'm done, I go, I get it, right? Yeah. Like, I, I, I can... I can see why. I, I don't blame anybody. I was just talking to my parents a few weeks ago uh, about this. And there's so many wonderful people like your parents, you know, your your dad and and your your mom, God rest her soul. They were they were the best. I probably spent more time in your house in high school than I did in my own house. And they had no problem with it. Maybe they did, <laughs> but they never let on to it. And so there's so many wonderful people, but there's also there's also really, really broken people that hurt others. And then people get into their adult years that have experienced that stuff and they go, I just can't take it. It just doesn't make sense. There's too many questions. You throw the questions in with these hurtful experiences and they go, I'm done. Did that happen to you? I mean, what was what was your experience as you moved into your adult life? I know your story, but but people don't. I think it'd be helpful yeah. to hear it. Yeah, I was one of those people who said I'm done, you know, and, and it wasn't so much the, the, the junk and the, the, the really gross stuff that happened at the church and at the school, as much as it was the response, you know, and so um, when you see leadership not lead in a way that's Christ-like, when you see, um, you know, other people who, who whether it was purposeful or, or not, just hurt you through their actions, um, it's really hard to believe the words that they have said and so when that's all you know and you know and, and part of my journey of walking away I won't get into the full story because it's too long but um I really felt like I was um called to to go into full-time ministry at a young age um whether that was an emotional response or it was a real thing who knows um but I quit a full-time good-paying job to take a minuscule part-time job at the church um because I wanted, I thought it was like my foot in the door and I thought it was the next step. Looking back on it, it really was that performance-based thing um, and connected to that. But at the time I didn't know that and I wasn't being shepherded or mentored by anybody who could help me understand that. So to give up a career job at a young age that was paying a good wage to take a 75% pay cut because I wanted so desperately to work at the church. And then just a few months later, have the the leader that you're reporting to basically say you're we we don't want you to work here you know to serve in this capacity and if you can't serve in this capacity we don't think that you're capable or willing to serve in any capacity here mm -hmm. to have your keys taken away to have all your authority and all your positions taken away with like no notice and seemingly that something that didn't make any sense to a person that i looked at as unhealthy was so devastating to me so that on top of the scandals and the junk that happened in the church that's when I was like, God, I'm done with you. I'm done with the church. And I'm tired of limiting me, uh, limiting the experiences I can have in the name of God when I could be partying with my friends and I could be experiencing all these other amazing things. And so I walked away completely and started partying and I started doing all the stuff, um, living out. I mean, it sounds like the churchy thing to say, but I really do identify with the prodigal son story of like, I, I want to go experience the world. Yeah, why and not, I, right? And I did, right? Because exactly, if this is the world I grew up in believing and it shatters and it falls apart, and like, then I don't even know what's real, but all I know is that looks fun. And uh, I don't think I had ever had my first drink till I was like 23 or 24 because, you know, I was a worship leader. You're not supposed to drink. You know, that's mm -hmm. that's of the devil. Um, I'm sure that's a whole other podcast for you. But the point <laughs> of it is is that, um, yeah, it, the problem though is like we all know is that it might feel good in the, in the short term, but you end up in this really destructive path. And so few years later, and I had already battled with depression anyways, but I ended up being suicidal and um, I saw no purpose to my life. And um, 
and I did not believe that the world was better because I was in it. And it was such a dark place. I couldn't get myself out of it. And I finally opened up and shared that with one person of all places. It was uh, a new person at the, uh, car dealership I was working at who then told my boss and we had a conversation and I will never forget this moment because it changed everything in my life. Um, he goes, well, you said you used to go to church, right? And, and he said, look, I'm not a religious person, but uh, you mentioned that you used to go to sh- church. And I was like, yeah, he goes, well, maybe that's what's going on. Like you, there's this wow. void or this emptiness. And I said, you have no idea. I will never step foot in a church, especially that church. And he's like, maybe that's what's missing. Is there, is there something um, or someone that you could talk to. And I was like, I don't trust anybody there. But then I remembered, because the challenge I had was I didn't know how to talk about my pain. I was the guy who was the, the funny guy. I was class clown four years in a row in high school. I didn't know how to express pain. Plus in church, no one talked about bad stuff. No one talked about painful experiences. So I thought I was the only person who was experiencing this pain. But then one person came to mind that someone I could talk to, and he had uh, he was a uh, the youth pastor in the church. Just several months before this experience, um, unfortunately, his uh, five month old daughter had just died. And the way he was so vocal in his grief, and the way he was so um, public about his pain, I mean, if there's one person who's safe to talk about pain with, it's this guy. And he's someone I had a good relationship with, anyways. He was a friend of mine. I served with him. So uh, my boss said, take tomorrow off and just call him. And so I was so fortunate because he's a busy guy. Wow. He took the phone call. He cleared his whole schedule and I weeped. I went to his office. We, we cried and talked and uh, all day long. And um, yeah, I look back and I'm like, God can use the most crazy situations to just to, to turn you around. Like who knew that my sales manager of all people would, would do that. And it was a, it's not one of those, like everything is fine right away things. It took me 18 months of exploring. Um, truthfully, a lot of um, my journey was I need to just strip away all the beliefs and start from scratch. And it's hard when you have, when you're filled with all this performance based theology to know what's real and what's not. And so I was actually encouraged by several different people of like that weren't connected to each other, varying denominations um, to go start over, question everything you read and ask a lot of questions. And so every scripture I read um, and I didn't understand, I would ask it and I would dissect Mm. it with a skeptical nature. That's good. And everything then that passed that filter became truth. And that ultimately is what uh, about 18 months later found a really supportive church that was really open about real life and real God and real people um, uh, where I gave my life back to Christ in the summer of 2018, or I'm sorry, the the summer of 2008. Um, But I got plugged into a young adult group and I'd never heard people talk so openly about struggles and challenges that I had at this group. There was a young woman who had been sober for six months and she talked about it. It's like, wait, you're allowed to talk about that kind of stuff here. Um, there's another young man who had an estranged relationship with his father and was just talking about the resentment that he was trying to process. I'm like, I, I didn't know you could talk about this stuff at church. And it was there. Uh, I watched a video about finding hope when life hurts. And that's when I was like, this is the God I've been looking for my whole life and uh, gave my life back to him. That's, uh, it's hard to, it's hard to explain to people who haven't grown up in our particular stream when they maybe hear something like, I just, I couldn't say how hard life was. And they go, well, yeah, I can kind of relate to that. What they don't get is the particulars of like, we're in this word of faith, prosperity gospel church. And what you say brings these, allegedly brings these like realities to life, right? And so you are always monitoring. I've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. (laughs) 
you were always monitoring that your sort of like faith threshold that you had to hit, right? Mm. And, and that's a big part of the sort of performance mentality. It wasn't just worship performances to gain social approval and sec- acceptance by going up and dancing up front or being the most outwardly religious person in the room in order to be accepted by the group. But it was also this theology of you have to have positive thoughts all the time. You don't question things. To do so is a demonstration that you don't have enough faith. And how many times did you hear, like, that which isn't of faith is sin? And so to find, it's so hard to talk about how difficult it is when you've been raised in that, to to be able to break through that and actually share something that's like, yeah, I, f- I actually kind of feel like my life sucks right now. Yeah. When you've spent your entire time in an atmosphere that goes, you know, you don't say that because that that's the opposite of faith. That's not, you know, positive speaking. And so to find, I think it's really crucial. I just want to highlight this point because it's something I think we've ta- I've talked about quite a bit on this podcast is like your particular stream. I always encourage people, whether I'm meeting with them in person or whether we're talking about on the podcast, before you leave... The Christian story altogether. Make sure that what you've experienced isn't just one little sliver of it. And in your case, it was so crucial for you, even though I stay, I was still at the same church at this time, the church we, we grew up in. Or maybe I'd moved. I can't remember. Anyways, um, I was... I was still there, but it was so important when I found that you had found another place to go to celebrate what was going on there and acknowledge that it was totally different and that that difference wasn't something wrong, but that was actually something really, really valuable, that you got a wider picture of the big tent that this sort of following Jesus movement encompasses. And it includes this thing which you had never really experienced before, right? Yeah. You know, what's amazing about that too, was that uh, there was two leaders at the church. So when I went back to church, I, I went and visited the same church I grew up in. And there was so much pain and so much resentment every time I walked in that that building, that one of the, the people I really grew to trust, he goes, you know what? I think it's going to be really hard for you to heal here. I want to give you permission to go find another church, not because I don't love you and I don't care about you and not because I don't want you here, but because I think it's what's best for you. So not only did I learn God's grace from this person who let me use an extra vehicle when I, when I went broke and, and needed transportation, they let me use their extra vehicle, all these amazing things. Um, but they also modeled Christ. We have like, this isn't about our church membership. This is about what's best for you. And I think there's too much pain here for you to heal and truly experience God's love. I want to give you permission to go search. I cannot tell you how much that meant to me to go. That's awesome. Really? And so I did, I searched and I found a place that became home for 10 plus years. That's where I met my wife. That's where I served. That's where I was encouraged to do this ministry internship. I was challenged to go back to school and face my fear of failure and, um, and really challenged to reject all of these horrible things I believed about myself and all of these things I believed about God that I grew up learning and to rebuild my, um, my faith through just learning who God really was and not the God I thought he was based on this performance measurement. That's so huge because I think in any positive reconstruction, when someone goes through a, a process of, of deconstruction and deconstructing their faith, that what they believe about God, what they believe about themselves and the world, when they become disoriented, there is this 
unhealthy deconstruction, which can lead people to totally, uh, total ruin and devastation. Like they just nuke the whole thing, including anybody from their past that they interacted with. And I think it's so un- so interesting to hear how important it was for you to be able to go back to that church knowing this there's a lot of hurt here and there's a lot of people that hurt you. There's even people you probably hurt. This is going to be a mess. And to have somebody from that place go and bless you and say, go find Jesus in a different shape than shape it takes here is such a huge part of people being able to positively reconstruct, be able to not wholesale toss out everything from their past journey, to not be bitter, to not be cynical about it all, but to actually see even in that past place, there was a there's goodness there. And there's people yeah. there that are are following the way of Jesus and they're and they're to be celebrated, right? Right. And it brought closure to that period of life too. Had I not had that, I think it would have still been a wound rather than a scar. I don't think it would have wrapped up and I would have brought some of that pain, that baggage into the new place because I had that ending experience so positive and so releasing. I think it really set me up for the next level. Um, it was, it was huge. You know, the thing that I wanted to share though, because this is the part I think that people struggle with. And the, I think also as a social worker, it's helped me so much because it's one thing to have like this new experience and you recommit your life to Christ but the challenge that I look back at, at that that church we both grew up in, along with so many unhealthy churches that I've had to serve at with the different grief support trainings and stuff, is, is one simple word, and it's identity. So many Christians draw their identity from what they do, what people think, or the titles that they have, the, the positions that they serve in, and they never truly learn who they are in Christ. And that is such a foundational thing that I'm so fortunate that when I did my my internship, before letting me serve in any large capacity, the pastor would meet with me every other week and we would just focus on identity and who I am in Christ and memorize verses and scriptures. And he was laying this groundwork to, to help me knowing that my background struggling with depression and self-worth issues and shame to reject these lies and replace them with truth about who God has made you to be. Memorizing Ephesians 3, 10 or 210 and saying that, you know, we are God's masterpiece and that he created us anew in Christ Jesus to do the good works he prepared for us long ago. That laid a foundation in my life that helped me re um, uh, revisit all these childhood wounds. Even of saying, I'm not junk. I'm not defective. I, I'm a child of God and I'm made uniquely. I just maybe haven't found my place in my place in this world, the, the Michael W. Smith <laughs> going through <laughs> people. Okay. Side note. I'm sorry. I just had to tell your listener something. Yep. Paul and I used to serve at this camp every year. Well, that's where I we met my drive, wife. Dr- yeah. Drive uh, from Michigan, uh, to, uh, through Chicago to get to Minneapolis. And we always would hit Chicago traffic and be stuck, not moving for an hour. And we called it the doldrums, the doldrums. And when we hit the doldrums, we would just kind of like, you know what to do. And we put on Michael W. Smith's greatest hits, 1983 to 1993, right. roll down all the windows and just that's sing right. at the top of our lungs. So if you listening are ever stuck in the doldrums, that's right. you know what to do. You got to. Get that Michael W. Smith greatest hits and you just go for it. That that thing still wails. I'm not even joking. Like not even like in any ironic sense, that record 
is just amazing. It's just oh, so my good. goodness. Just so, so good. yeah, but that, that identity is so, so crucial. You have to know who you are and who you aren't. Because if we based our value on what we do, if we base our value on achievement or approval or acceptance, um, we're going to fall flat on our faces because titles change, jobs change. And truthfully, I couldn't be doing what I'm doing now. Um, I, I had to walk away from the nonprofit that I had so much success at because my family needed me to be a full-time dad of our son that we just adopted. And that was a hard decision. But if my identity was wrapped up in my work or in my title as executive director there, I never in a million years could have made the decision that my family and my son needed me to make. And, uh, you know, years later, I don't know how this is all going to play out, but I want my son to know that um, my career was second to his life. And financially and health insurance-wise, I needed to make that decision for our family. But 12 years ago, if I hadn't made, if we hadn't laid that groundwork, that foundation of, you know, your identity is uh, who you are in Christ and not what people think about you or what your title says. I never would have been able to make that decision. And I don't think I would have had the success at that organization I had if I needed it. Right, right. Okay. So you touched on something here. I want to, I want to, I want to explore a little bit more because you talk about how this sort of healing, this internal healing that you went through, this renewed sense of what your identity is, having that anchored in Christ, not anchored in your performance, not anchored in the things that you do because those are transitory and fleeting. It's interesting, like from my perspective, during those years where you were going through this deconstruction and going through your process of hurt, it seems like you were simultaneously also wrestling with a sense of what you should do in your vocation. You know, you brought up that Ephesians passage, right? Like we are, there is part of us, we are created as his workmanship to do good works in the world, right? And that is a significant part of our experience of meaning is when we actually participate in doing good works in the world. I mean, that's a huge part of what we're called to do. What, when you look back on that time, you know, someone who didn't get their college degree till 15 years after high school. And that's for a lot of people, they get to that point and it's like, I, I can't go back. I can't start anew. There's so much of this, this uh, like nihilistic snowball that begins. Right. And it's rolling its way down and the momentum gets so strong. I, I had so many conversations with, with young men in their twenties and they wrestle with all of these questions about God, but it's interesting. It's not just like questions about God or questions about truth. They're simultaneously also going like, I don't even know what I want to do for work or what I like to do. So like, what do you tell somebody, Rick, as someone who went through that, experienced that disillusion, kind of maybe wrestled with what should you even do as a vocation? I don't mean just as work, but like, what should you do to bless the world? What can you tell a person who started this negative trajectory towards apathy? What can they do to course correct? What, what do you see as the, the link between your own past state of spiritual crisis and the difficulty it was to find vocational clarity? Yeah, I think that uh, really what I, I think you have to look at it differently. You know, course correcting is a good way to look at it from one angle, but the thing that's helped me make sense of it so much is, is looking at it as a journey, right? When you don't know where you're going and you're just heading, you feel lost or stuck or trapped. 
And, and so if you, if you equate it to being on a journey where there's tough terrain, there's this deep wilderness where there doesn't seem to be any light or sunshine, uh, potentially is cold and dreary, um, you need a guide, right? And so someone who can help you navigate these things, but also it's as you grow through this journey, one of the things that gives you hope and purpose is knowing there's someone else that's going to benefit. If I, if I travel this journey and I go back and become a guide and engage other people on a similar journey than what I've done, it brings meaning and purpose to these painful or mm. challenging circumstances. And, and so as a gr- guy who grew up with, with um, just feelings, a lot of shame and self-worth that I buried behind humor, um, I know there's other people that are just like me out there. And so, or, Hey, I'm in my thirties and I don't have any, I have nine credits and I flunked out of school cause I thought I was dumb. Um, you know, going, no, you're not dumb. You, you don't know how to study and you have ADHD that didn't get checked. And so by getting diagnosed and going through treatment and learning some basic coping skills and approaching it in a non-traditional way, it shows, Oh, you're not dumb. You're actually smart. You just need to learn that. But so taking the wisdom you gain by going on this journey now you are qualified to become a guide for somebody else. And I think the truest sense of that completion of that healing comes when you invest what you've learned on that journey into the life of somebody else. So some of it can be career-wise. Some of it could be um, self-worth-wise. In my case, a lot of that was also with grief and loss. You know, when you knew my mom really well. When she died unexpectedly, it was devastating. It was just yeah. a couple months after my wife's mom had just died. And we'd only been married for 18 months. And so to go through the loss of both of our moms right at the beginning of our marriage was devastating. And then just shortly after that, we found out that we'd likely not be able to conceive children on our own. And that was just, just heart wrenching. And you're like, what, what am I supposed to do? You know, for so many years, I experienced all this pain and self-worth issues that led to some really bad decisions. Now I'm experiencing these things that are so out of my control and it's just crushing me. And, and that's when I learned I have to reframe all of this and go like part of my journey is um, as I grow and heal, I've got to invest this into other people, but I have to do the work now. And sometimes it's not so much the end of the road. I have to model what it's like to walk the grief journey as I'm doing it because there's other leaders who don't know how to do this. And so that's, you know, working in the grief support organization and helping others as you're grieving is so hard but also so healing because i'm doing all this work and investing in my own healing and i'm sharing it with other people and when you when you share with something somebody something that you've learned something that's so personal and so intimate and you see it create hope in their life it doesn't make the pain that you've experienced go away but it brings meaning to it i mean Mm. uh, victor frankel is he's quoted by so many other authors this is his journey the man's search for meaning about you know not being able to control these painful experiences but what what can i do with them and that that's really what gave my life a sense of purpose you know serving in a recovery group for three years i gained so much out of it but also i gained just from the personal application but then also investing what i learned into the other you know lives of other young men and other men that were you know couple decades older than me, you're like, wow, all right, this is my ministry. And that's really when I switched from vocational ministry, where I thought I was going to go get a, you know, be a pastor or a worship leader and going, there's people that I call it being in the trenches. There's people out in the world who may or may not have an affiliation with, with the church, but they need some version of God that they, they don't know. And if I can be that to them on the streets or outside and bridge the gap between the world and the church, that's my calling. And so partnering with churches, but instead of working with churches directly and being staffed by churches was kind of where I found my niche. And I was able to take 
um, theology and I was able to take these different spiritual themes but bring them down to practical level, especially if someone had been wounded by a church and was absolutely opposed by it. I knew what that was like because I'd been there. And hearing it from me brought different meaning to it. And like, hey, I've been on both sides of this church thing. I get it. And I want to talk to you about what I've learned and what I, I can offer you and how you can find the same kind of healing I have. And uh, that brought a lot of meaning to the losses we experienced, brought so much meaning to that journey of pain. And I think that the pinnacle of that was teaching at um, Wayne State University is a, a pretty big uh, social work program here in Metro Detroit or in, in the city of Detroit. And I was invited by one of my professors to come back and talk about the leadership journey with a bunch of social work leadership students. And I said, wow. you can't lead um, until you embrace your own journey. And so the journey that each of you are traveling has brought you to this point. Do not keep that separate. You've got to incorporate that into who you are. It's a part of your journey. And if, if you pretend like that hasn't shaped you as a leader, you're doing this world as a service. Instead, what you have to do is you have to own it and, um, and know who you are and how this is experienced. You know, these experiences have shaped your life so that you can invest that as a leader, whatever field you're going into. And it was so amazing to sit in front of these students. Um, in fact, uh, I don't think I told you this. One of um, the students in that class I spoke at turned out to be the case manager for my adoption. Wow. Yeah, so when we uh, had her over to do the first home study, she goes, you look familiar. It's like, okay, and we started talking. She's like, yeah, I went to Wayne State. I got my, my social work degree. Oh, so did I. And she goes, that's why I know you. You sounded so familiar. You spoke to my class. And I was like, what are the odds that that, that happened? And it was just like so orchestrated. But it was cool to hear that that had meaning for her. And she'd just gotten her master's in social work. And she's the one that ended up helping us uh, find our, our son. And it was amazing. Wow. That's incredible. I didn't know that. Yeah. Those rays of hope um, in that place of feeling like apathetic, feeling a sense of <clears throat> total meaning crisis. What, you know, what, what was it? What was maybe that first step? Because I'm, 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 there's specific people that, <coughs> pardon me, there's specific people I can picture right now that I know that are in a similar place to where you were and they they don't even know how to make the first step out of that rut. You know, it's like it's so hard for them to even feel a sense of hope, like a, a hope that would give them the motivation to move. What do you remember? What that was for you, like the the first step or the first phases of the step that that moved you in this fresh direction, that gave you this hope to like Rick. I mean, there's so many people, right? That would, if we were, you know, somehow to able to beam this podcast back to high school when people didn't even know what podcasts, were. <laughs> like what is that? And they were listening to this and they go, "Wait, Rick has a master's? Like he went to grad school?" What? It's unbelievable. You know, I think, so I go back to that, that, day, that day with our, our youth pastor. There were two things that happened that really set the, the course. And then there was a couple of events after that that played a role. The first is, is obvious, but it doesn't matter because it's love. You Experiencing like true unconditional love, um, you feel so safe, so secure to let your guard down and your real raw um, unfiltered emotions, the pain, the hurt, the questions. And then when someone meets that and just, I love you for who you are, not what you do, there's something so powerful and transformational about that. 
So that's the first one. But the second one was the one that, uh, that uh, snuck up on me and caught me off guard. It was forgiveness. And, you know, forgiveness, okay, I've done something wrong, someone needs to forgive me. Um, but, uh, and, and let me, let me present, forgiveness with humility. When, when I met with this pastor, the thing that blew me away that just made me weep and weep uncontrollably. Are you talking about the was, one that blessed you to leave? Uh, before that, the youth pastor okay, that we okay, had served with, okay, gotcha, okay. He, uh, he was the one that had lost his daughter, and I knew that he could understand pain. He said, you know, before we talk more about the stuff and I give you all this advice, I need to apologize. I'm like, what are you apologizing for? He goes, I didn't have your back. When all that stuff happened with the church and, and the, you know, the, the hurts and you know, losing your positions, I, I was a coward. I didn't go to bat for you. And I just want to say I'm sorry, and that has haunted me. And I know that I, whether you think it or not, I played a role in the hurt. And I just want to say I'm sorry. Oh man, I, I, I had never heard anything like that. I didn't. I don't even know if I knew what the word humility was. But he had no need. I didn't even hold any resentment towards him. I didn't even equate that with him. But you could tell he did so much prayer and preparation for that moment. And it was like the Holy Spirit put that on his heart, and he just needed to share that that unlocked something in me because then he invited me to come to church with him. He goes, no, 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 not, don't just come, come be my guest. Walk in the door with me. Cause I know how hard this will be, but I want you to come with me because I know it's important. Right? So those two actions of unconditional love, the, the forgiveness and the humility that broke something in me. Cause again, we didn't experience that kind of spirituality growing up, but no matter whether you're a part of a church or not, or you have intense pain or not, there's something transformational about, humility and forgiveness and love. And, and those are traits, you know, when we created the core value statement at the grief support organization, our, our core values were lead with love, act with courage, serve with humility, because those three traits could be traced to so much healing. And ultimately I said, if we did nothing else but love, courage, and humility, could we facilitate our mission of hope, healing, and new beginnings? So that covers everything. So if you live out those three traits, I mean, it took courage for him to bring that up. Courage to ask for forgiveness when he's the pastor I'm seeking out, um, the humility and the love. I, it was unbelievable. And so those who are still hurting, whether it's a church wound or um, a broken family or a relationship or a grief and loss, um, when you can experience true love and humility and someone reaches out to you with courage, though. I mean, those are the core traits that Christ came with. And I think that's from a social work perspective and from a church perspective, blending those worlds, we have to live those traits out. I don't care about what you know. I need to know that you can walk with love and to, to, to you know, live with and serve with courage and humility because those traits are um, fueled by belief, right? You can tell someone's theology by the way they live. And so if they truly believe these things and their actions reflect it, and I, I think that's where true church hurt comes from is when us as leaders don't take the time to work through our own junk. And then we don't have the capacity to love or we don't have the capacity to serve with humility or to ask with forgiveness or, or anything like that. And so um, when you're around people who can love you unconditionally, you never forget those people. Um, and if you're around somebody who walks with true humility and uses everything about them to serve others. And then this is the thing, humility is so different for everybody as a big time extrovert who speaks publicly for a living and, and is a natural, I, hate using words, I, I, I have a gift to draw attention. 
Definitely. It's, it's what I use. <laughs> it's what I use that for. If it's going to be used for good or for myself for years, I used it to try to gain approval. So it's using being used for destruction, right? I needed to feed my ego. Now every, I can go. I every use time that. we go back, every time we go back and visit my parents and we play Balderdash every time they go, Oh, we wish Rick was here to play Balderdash <laughs> with us. Right. You go, okay. So, so humility can be how you use a gift that God's given you. So it doesn't mean I can't be extroverted or I can't be fun and bubbly. It means if I naturally draw attention or if I naturally entertain, what am I pointing that attention towards or what am I using and how am I benefiting others with that gift? Yeah. And so, cause other people who might be quiet or shy aren't necessarily humble. They're just quiet or shy. And they're, they're feeling just as insecure, but they're doing it in an introverted way versus my extroverted way. So I don't remember where I was going with that, but the point of it was that humility is such a powerful trait and each of us can model it no matter what our personality is because it's a comes from a sense of identity. If I need your approval, then I need to use my extroverted kind of attention-grabbing thing to get it. If I feel secure in who God's made me to be and I don't need that, then I can walk and go, who needs attention today that I can bless them with? That's why every organization, I don't care if you're a business or a church, should do when you, a new person joins your staff, it should do some form of uh, personal and spiritual evaluations, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it was when I jumped into seminary and <clears throat> I started my master's, the first thing they did was took me through a process of personality tests and evaluations of sitting down with a licensed counselor to review my scores and to talk about things right away because that's spot on when you talk about something like a leader leading with humility there's this false humility narrative that is can really be um you know really be expressed in christian circles where there's this sense that someone like you rick someone tells you rick you need to be humble and what they mean by that is rick you need to stop being such a strong leader right we'd like Mm -hmm. you we'd like you to be tame And, and this is really hard especially for for well, it's hard for men and women in unique ways because women hear it all the time, right? They hear that they're, you know, what they should, what humility should look like is that they should be quiet and be in the back. You know, for men, it's like, don't be, don't have too much bravado, you know, don't be in front of people. And someone like you that has this natural propensity to, to be in front of a room, instead of using that energy, you get communicated to you. Well, you should just shut up mm-hmm. <laughs> and be quiet. Yeah, right? and that's you not know, real I, humility. I learned this in in uh, going to that that young adult program. It grew to like we had sixty people every every week there. So we had to move it to the church, set up roundtables, and so we were always getting new people there. And um, I was trying to serve. Uh, well, hey, you're here. You need to serve with humility. So I need to be the one that helps tear down and, and do tables, put stuff away. And I realized it's like nobody's talking to the new people as they leave. And so I realized. I, I talked to the one of the leaders. I was like, you know, I know that this is going to sound egotistical, but I don't think I'm supposed to be the one tearing down the chairs and tables. I think I need to be out the door talking to people. And one of the leaders said, "I'm so glad you recognize that because um, that's you using your gift." You know, if I'm, mm-hmm. if one of my spiritual gifts is hospitality or connections, um, that's one of the reasons I, I don't lead worship anymore. Not because I don't love it, but I realized my love for worship had nothing to do with the music. I still love music, but I wasn't, a tr- every other worship leader I know is like passionate about music. <laughs> and I went, I'm, I realized my gift was connecting people to God. Music happened to be the format yep, and it just totally. shifted to small groups. 
small groups is my natural gift, people and talking and teaching and connecting. And music is a fun little hobby. Truthfully, I haven't picked up my guitar since I stopped leading worship. I pick it up here and there, but I'm not a musician in that right. truest sense. In fact, I'm just a geek actually who loves nerd stuff, you know? So, um, but the point of it is, is humility for me was surrendering what I thought I needed to be viewed at, which was being a humble servant. Instead of going, this person needs someone to know them and I need to be that person. And so when you know who you are and when you know who you aren't, God's able to use you in a really special way because you're secure in him. And so you don't need those things and you can serve out of them. And so knowing your spiritual gifts, knowing your strengths, knowing your personality, I'm a huge proponent of that. You know, the Enneagram is one of my favorite tools. Um, Strengths-based leadership, strengths finder, uh, DISC. There's all these different profiles, but it helps you really discover how God's wired you. So when it's going back to this whole masterpiece idea, really it's this combination of three things, your identity, um, finding meaning with your past experiences, and then your purpose, right? So if you're looking at your strengths and you're looking at your personality and your past experiences, and then as God heals you, there's things out in the community that you are uniquely wired for. And so part of that leadership journey, going back to course correcting, is about as you heal and as you grow, you naturally go, this is where I'm supposed to be. And so I have a, a tool that I've used with people. Um, everyone has different variations of it, but I call it finding your impact zone. And it's really where does your passion align with your strengths? And there's a series of questions that you can kind of ask to figure out, like, where am I uniquely equipped to make the biggest impact? Because if I'm passionate about something, let's say grief support, but my gift set is to provide direct grief support in a group versus taking a leadership role and having administrative duties and training duties, uh, I might not be as effective in making the biggest impact, even though the cause is something I'm passionate about. My method of approach is, is misaligned. Um, or same thing, I'm passionate about leading worship, um, but uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a musician. You know, there's all these different yeah, yeah, kinds of things, right? Yeah. So your, your passion and your strengths have to align. And sometimes it takes years to figure that out. Some people know right away. Other people, for me, like it, it took me 10 plus years to figure that stuff out. And then it took a lot of pain. But I think for me, um, I've been reflecting on this a lot lately. What good is it to have the gift of speaking and teaching and, and communication if you have nothing good to talk about? Right. Yeah. Like, what, I'm a gifted <laughs> storyteller and all my stories are boring. Oh, yeah. Everything was actually really simple and easy. The end. Those are terrible stories. And so, uh, you know, what I traded in the world, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm really thankful that God's redeemed a lot of that stuff and that I can make a difference in people's lives because of the junk I've been mm. through and the, the, the pain I've caused myself. But at the same time, because he's equipped me with the the gifts that he has, I've been able to, to use it for good. And, um, and I'm really grateful for that. What you just said there is to me like a telltale sign of somebody that's gone through reconstruction and they've, they've gone through that process of healing and they, they can say what you just said. I'd love to actually put some of your your vocational calling and expertise to good use here while I've got you around. Because yeah. we've spent quite a bit of time on this podcast going through um, the problem of evil. You know, we're, I'm primarily exploring and helping people see how theology intersects to all areas of their life, whether that's in pop culture or whether it's in these huge problems that people have wrestled with for millennia. And we've, we've talked about the problem of evil being split into two related but often um, experientially separate issues. And you've got the problem of evil and suffering that you can explore as the sort of philosophical problem, but then you also have the emotional problem of evil. And I saw something, Jürgen Moltmann, theologian who I, I think 
has really tried throughout his life, um, saw the horrors of World War II, wrote a pretty legendary book called The Crucified God. Uh, he's tried to make, make sure the philosophical problem of evil is never disconnected from people's personal and emotional experience of suffering. And he, he wrote this in uh, regard to some questions people had about God, evil, and the coronavirus. He said this recently. He said, the question, why does God allow this? Why does God allow pandemics? Is a question of onlookers, not of those who are affected. Those who are affected seek healing and comfort. I really think of you as an expert, Rick, in helping people who've experienced significant loss. You've given at least the last five, six, seven years of your life to it. You're doing a significant part of your work now is helping uh, organizations uh, process how to help people grieve and go through loss well. I, I mean, do you agree with Moltmann, first of all? <laughs> and Yeah, I, I was reading that quote, and I I don't think I do agree with it. Okay. I, I, it's not, I, I think it's spot on in some cases, right? Yeah. But the question of why is absolutely a question I've heard for five and a half years from people who have personally experienced tragedy because I don't think it's mutually exclusive. They're seeking comfort and healing, but part of that journey is answering this why question. Yeah. And the thing that I found was that... It's good to know that these podcasts have not been a waste of time. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Going it's, through it's that fascinating why. Because truthfully, one of the things we saw, so the organization I was at, we partnered with a lot of churches and only about 50 to 60% of the people who came to our program said they had some type of church home or church affiliation. But one of the things we noticed consistently was that a lot of the Christians that came to us came to us because they knew they were having a hard time talking about their grief or their pain at their church. And but uh, by us being a Christian organization, I actually give people permission to use whatever language you need to use because you need to be able to process what you're truly feeling. And they didn't always feel they could say that in their church. And so the question of why came up, I don't have a metric, but I'd say over 90% of the time, why does God allow this to happen? Why did this happen? And what I ended up finding out, and actually it was a young man who had tragically lost his girlfriend in a car accident. It was a terrible story. Um, he was getting ready to propose. There was a car accident. They're driving two uh, separate cars. He was the person that found her on the side of the road uh, and um, just devastating. And he shared something so powerful. He said, I've come to learn that my why question might not have an answer. And I, I was blown away. And I said, how did you learn that? He said, I don't even know. Just nothing else makes sense. And I, I, what I end up kind of taking away from that statement that I used in so many different presentations and working with people individually is ultimately every one of us has a why question, whether we know it or not. It could be extreme. It could be subtle. Um, but in order to heal and find comfort and move forward and, and, and our, our journey, we have to come to resolution with that why question. The challenge is that either A, there isn't an answer, or B, there is an answer, but we might not like it. And in order to fully transition, um, it's about adjusting our why questions to a what question. In order to do that, you have to experience a certain amount of healing, but it also takes an, a form of acceptance of, I have to accept that I, I'm not going to get an answer to this question. And that's where the healing comes. So to say that someone who's been diagnosed with, with uh, the coronavirus right now, who's suffering, um, of course, they want healing and comfort, or maybe they're suffering from the economic side of things. Of yeah. Their work collapsed because of this virus. They still are seeking out healing and comfort, but they're also asking why. The difference is that their life often depends on the answer to the why question, whereas the onlooker 
can turn it into a political statement or they can turn it into a exposition or a nasty Facebook post. The person who's on the inside suffering is like suffering and their answer to this question is life or death. You know, and so why does God allow pain and suffering? For the person that's suffering, if they can't find answers to that question, they're, they're going to suffer more. And that's the hard part. And so the, when, you, when you combine that with the fact that there's likely isn't an answer, how do you reconcile it? And that's a lot of the grief work we had to do was like helping people come to a term of, I don't know if you're going to find the answer to this question. And if you continue to search for the next 10 years, you're going to drive yourself crazy, but yet you need to be able to express that. Write down every why question that you have, unfiltered, and let's talk through it. You know, And so people need to have permission to ask those questions. Um, and often in the church especially, we don't give them that because we're scared that we don't know the answer. And so if we don't know the answer, are we going to be viewed as an expert in the field? So I'd rather not let them ask the question. And not every church does that, but for every one church or two churches that do it well, there's five to ten that don't. Yeah, I think it's important too that people, in, especially in Christian settings, know that even potentially the answer to the why that their particular church gives might not be the universal answer Christians have given throughout the ages too. I think the why, I think of in our um, childhood church, the why answer to suffering, which we did see quite a bit of, um, often pointed back to us, like a lack of faith some sort of, uh, and maybe not explicitly stated, but implied that the the fault laid on our shoulders for that situation. Yeah. And so I think it's important when people go through this and is to actually be able to talk outside of their stream, their particular church, their particular domination to other voices. And it's not that the other voices have it right either. It's just that, well, there could be a different way of explaining this. There could be a better answer than what, what you've heard. And I think that's really important too from the theological and the philosophical side. I was wondering, have you ever seen um, BBC did this awesome, uh, awesome film? Um, it was never in theaters. They aired it just on the BBC. It was called God on Trial. Mm -mm. Okay. So it's, I mean, it's got some just heavy, heavy hitters in the, the world of British, British actors. Um, I can't name any of them off the top of my head, of course. But it's uh, it was based on a play. You got to check this out. I, I think you'll love it. It was based on a play that's you know kind of an apocryphal story uh, set in Auschwitz um, during the Holocaust. And allegedly there was this there was this legend that in Auschwitz in one of the barracks that the Jewish people had a trial for God. They held a, a trial for God to see if God was guilty of abandoning them. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's an awesome, awesome film. You got to check it out. Anybody listening, check it out. Um, you can probably find it on YouTube somewhere. It's called God on Trial. And what they do is essentially go through and different people in this in this barracks in Auschwitz, Auschwitz, Auschwitz before they're, some of them are about to go to the gas chambers, are asking all of the questions of why mm. about suffering. It's immensely powerful. I think, you know, especially with your, your proclivities to bring in pop culture <laughs> references to your, this wouldn't be quite pop culture, but um, maybe on the fringes of pop culture. Check it out, yeah. guys. <laughs> God on trial. Really, really good. So what are some of the things, Rick, um, what are some of the things that well-intended people do trying to help people who are experiencing grief that that may cause more harm than good? I, I mean, 
I think there's a couple of things, you know, and I'll speak both from my personal experience, um, but also from the, the, all the, the hundreds of people or thousands of people over the five and a half years I was able to serve. The first thing is we have this mindset of we have to fix their pain. Nobody who's hurting wants to be fixed. No one wants to be treated as a project. And so when our mindset is, oh, they're hurting, I have to make the pain go away. Uh, it's a cultural problem, especially in America right now, that we view pain as something to be fixed or cured or numbed or avoided. I mean, our whole economy is based on um, pain management. How many marketing people use the phrase, find their pain point as a, a way to sell something, wow. right? Yeah. And so when you think about that, so then you translate that to grief and loss, you grow up thinking pain is something to be avoided or cured. And we take a pill popping mentality into our churches, right? So a pastor who doesn't get that, oh, you're sad. Let me show you a cat meme versus <laughs> let me pray with you, right? Or let me just hear you cry. Uh, I That happened to me. Um, yep. Uh, I won't go into all the specifics okay. of it, but I will say that the, the person was doing their best. And nine times out of 10 during my mom uh, being in the hospital when she, when she died, this person was very compassionate and caring. At one point, you'd see they didn't know what else to do pulled out their phone. And next thing I'm looking at cat memes. I'm like, I don't know if my mom's going to make it or not. And you're showing me cat memes. Um, this, uh, put that away, please. You know, and I didn't know what to say. I just kind of went, uh-huh. So like I said, that, that was not the only thing they were very supportive, but that was like a sense of like, I don't know what to do. So let me make them laugh. <clears throat> so we, we do try to, to fix people's pain though. Hey, this person's hurting. Let's lay hands on them. Nobody wants to listen to it. They just want to fix it, make it go away. And usually it's because we're uncomfortable. And so we project that uncomfortable nature onto people when they're hurting. And that's why people, when they're grieving, don't want to go to church because it's so vulnerable. And you're, it's like you're walking into a place with a big open wound. Um, the example I gave was actually the when I had my hernia surgery, I had a, like a three-inch incision above my belly button. And uh, I went to church. That was, I think my surgery was on a Thursday. I went to church that Sunday. Nobody knows you just had surgery or they have a big, you know, uh, open, you know, cut with stitches and stuff. So one of those like big, you know, burly guys who, you know, wants to show his masculinity by kind of a, a high five or a smack on the back decided, Hey, I'm going to smack you on the belly. Oh. I just fell to the ground screaming. And he's like, what's wrong? I didn't have heart. My wife goes, you just had surgery. She goes, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I still had the stitches in, you know, I, I, it just happened. Oh. And so if I hadn't had that surgery, it wouldn't have hurt. But because you're going into this situation with this big gaping wound, everything can set you off. And so when you equate that to your emotions, when you're grieving, even if it's been a couple of years, but it's a, a milestone or a holiday and no one knows about it, you, they don't know that you're like this close to, to being set off and just losing control and just falling apart. And so you're so vulnerable when you go into church. And if someone starts to try to fix you, you, you might not come back for months because you don't know if it's safe. So creating a safe environment is crucial, but you have to recognize that that own uh, uncomfortableness in yourself, inside of us that wants to, to fix it. The, the other thing is we, I mean, read the cards and you'll, you, you'll get this. We over-spiritualize grief and loss, like with cliches. And again, going back to the whole being uncomfortable yeah. and stuff, you know, uh, God had a plan or heaven oh. just gained another angel or this is all in his perfect will or timing or well, at least they had a long life or at least they didn't suffer. It's so damaging to people because you're equating these these insensitive statements and, and nobody's doing it purposefully to hurt. No, them. no, no. They're well intended. Yeah, well intended for sure. But they're just not informed because often they haven't gone through it themselves. So they don't know what it feels like to say that. 
So like, here's a good example. Cheryl's, Cheryl's mom died a few months before mine. I'm an extrovert. I love small groups. We led a small group. Um, so in my brain, being around a small group and being connected to a community is something that my wife needed, right? In my opinion. Well, I'm the extrovert who's all social. Cheryl on a good day still doesn't, she'd rather be in the corner of the church hiding somewhere. She loves Jesus, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. she's just an introvert and she doesn't want to be around people very often. She can put on a good, like, um, like she's very personable, but she's not a people person. So why on earth at her worst would she then want to be around people? In her best, she doesn't want to be around people. So I projected my thoughts of what would be helpful for me onto her. And it created distance between us in our marriage because she didn't, I was no longer a safe person. And so it wasn't until my mom died that I went, I'm, I'm so sorry. I didn't know what this was like. And as a big extrovert, I didn't want to be around people. Why would she want to be around people? So I, I think the church, um, even the well-intended churches, isn't always a safe place. And so I think as pastors or as leaders, we have to understand if a person's hurting and doesn't come to church, it's not because they're backslidden. It's not because they're a horrible Christian. It's because they're hurting. And being around large groups of people creates an incredible amount of variables. And it's not always a good experience. And so mm. we have to be the church to them, even if it means calling them on a Sunday or going by their house and just talking to them. That's what the church is like. And I, I don't think we do a good job of that overall as a, as a church. So not fixing their pain, not over-spiritualizing it, and then not, um, not using those trite phrases to get ourselves out of these uncomfortable situations. You know, when you go to somebody, hey, how are you doing? And they actually answer, yeah, I'm having a tough day. You're like, oh, uh, well, you know, God has a plan. And I, I walk off. Like, man, that wasn't about them. That was about you and your discomfort and your inability to have empathy and connection. So those are three basic things that we can avoid doing. But really, ultimately, we, we have to learn how to be present and engage emotionally. The thing I love, I mean, Job is the book that everyone goes to with pain and suffering. Almost to the point where I hated it for a long time. But <laughs> after my mom died, I, I read it in a different lens. I read it through the lens of grief, grief support grief and loss. And there's so many really powerful things about what to do and what not to do. I, I don't have my Bible in front of me, so I can't quote the exact references. But at first, the friends get it right. They show up, they travel for seven days, they sit with Job and don't say a word. They rip their clothes and they just grieve with him. At that point, it's like, man, this is exactly what you're supposed to do. And what's crazy is that in that story, those actions finally help Job go, I feel safe enough to actually express my true unfiltered grief because they just sat with him for seven days. So he starts to open up his real thoughts, his real emotions. And the very first thing that happens, they go, whoa, 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 whoa. Mm -hmm. Dude, let's cut that off. You know, that's a little bit insensitive. And if you really knew who God was, you wouldn't be saying that. And I remember distinctly, like a couple of the things, phrases like, please just let me grieve. Please just let me talk. And he's so adamant in his words and they're so uncomfortable by his honest expression of grief that they just keep trying to silence him. It creates more anger, more frustration. And I'm like, we see this play out in our churches every single Sunday morning, you know, because we try to over-spiritualize grief. If we would just let people honestly share, I think in Psalm 69 is a really powerful statement of unfiltered grief. And it's David just talking about uh, how his throat feels, you know, parched and his face is, you know, raw from the tears like, this is what we need to be taught, that it's okay to pray unfiltered things. It's okay to share those things. 
And you have to know that the church is safe to do that. And so even if congregationally as a whole, it's not, who's that one person or those two people that you can talk to ahead of time and say, you know, Mother's Day is coming up and I, I'm going to have a hard time. And if, if I show up on Mother's Day and I just, I'm having a hard time, can I just sit with you and not have to explain why I'm struggling? And when you do that ahead of time and you plan for that, oh my gosh, it makes those days so much more manageable. How do you make you yourself also, available to people uh, yeah. to do that though? Like, so that it, one thing that's hard to do is for people to initiate those conversations when they're in pain, right? Mm -hmm. How do you make yourself available to somebody to sit with them in their grief and pain without moving into uh, to trying to be the, the person that fixes it. How do, how, do you make, how do you let someone know that you, you, you are there to be with them? I, I mean, maybe yeah. you just tell them that straight up. Is that odd or awkward? How do, you, how do you make steps towards people, especially the ones like myself, which I'm more introverted. I am not prone. People find it odd because I'm on platforms and I'm talking in front of people and singing and doing these things all the time. But it is not my natural proclivity to just open up and let somebody in on these unfiltered thoughts that I have. Mm. You know, my wife's figured out she's got to get the crowbar out and kind of cry <laughs> a little bit to get those things. Um, yeah. So how do you be that kind of person for somebody else? I, I think it comes with trust, right? So, and it can't, it, it's, a, it's a longer conversation. But what I would say is that it, it comes through the actions and the follow through. So if you're the type of person who already has a relationship with a person and you say, Hey, if you need anything, I'm here. One, you got to follow up with it. <clears throat> and then two, you have to also, if you understand that this person's hurting, they're likely not going to reach out to you because they're hurting. So the ones who follow back up, Hey, I was thinking about you today. I know today's a hard day. It's the one year anniversary, or I know it's mother's day and you're probably um, just struggling. I just want you to know I was praying for you today. That's the person who's it, it, in terms of the griever, um, you're more likely to reach out to that person because they get it. Um, but also you don't have to have experienced the same kind of loss to be empathetic towards them. It's, and some people are hardwired and more, much more naturally compassionate. I, as the class clown, clown was, was not a naturally compassionate person. You go through painful life experiences that changes you. So you can recognize the look on someone's eye and go, they're hurting. Let's go. I should check in on them. Um, but at the same time, um, so one, if someone's been through something, they're often the person to go to, even if you didn't even know them before. So when I lost my mom, some of the people I talked to the most often were people who had lost parents and, um, I didn't even know them very well, but they got it. So when I would go to church, that's who I wanted to sit with. Yeah. Um, and then the other people who are people who, we talked to earlier, who's the people that ooze the love and the humility and the, the courage, um, that you just know like they're going to be safe and they're going to be, they're going to protect me. Right. So you feel so vulnerable when you go to church. Part of it is like, I want to sit by someone who's not going to make me just cry, but they can fight off the 13 people who want to come over and ask me how I'm doing. Like, Hey, he's not in it today. Like, wow, this person had my back. Right. So those interactions are just as meaningful as the person who drops the casserole off. Right? You know, we always call them the, the grief casseroles. Right. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the, a lot of it is the actions and the intentionality, the the safety that they they do it with. Because you can feel if someone's trying to fix you when they're checking in, or if they're doing it with no strings attached, you know. And so I think there has to be kind of a psychological safety that someone exudes in order to feel open enough and trusting enough. Um, but there's some intentionality on the supportive person's part of like, hey, they're in grief, they're probably not going to reach out to me, so I need to be 
extra involved, but not to the point. And then you can even say, Hey, I don't know how to do this. Right. But I just know that if I show up, um, I just want you to know, I care. And, um, I'm not sure what to say, what to do or what you need, but I just want you to know, I really do want to be here for you and, um, help me know how I can best help you. You know, those are so honest and so compassionate because it's like, you're not, you're not trying so hard. You know, it's like this person hurts somebody. Oh, I want to be the one they call and go to. So let me just pry and pry, knock on the door. I'll take selfies of me and send them to them with little like, you know, fancy cat emojis on them or something. I don't know. So like, cat cat emoji. emoji. <laughs> it probably is. If we could incorporate more cat emojis into grief support, I feel like we'd all be doing a, a good service. I'm sure it's in scripture somewhere. Is it revelations <laughs> on that? Cat emojis. It's in a translation. What about if I, you know, it's it's easy to maybe identify when someone's going through grief because they've just had a singular traumatic experience, but that's not the only time grief emerges, right? What, what might even be some other emotions that might be associated with grief that we might not be able to name right away as part of a, maybe a cumulative experience? Yeah, that led us that's to a grief. great question. We hear this all the time. You know, people equate grief with sadness or grief with tears, and that's a portion of it. And sadness is one of the most prominent emotions with grief, but right next to sadness is anger. So if you do something and someone just goes off on you, like that made no sense, your first instinct goes, that person's a jerk. Rarely, if ever, do we go, that person's grieving or that person's hurting. And that's why they responded. So, but anger is such a prominent response to, to loss. Um, and it's such a prominent part of the grief experience, um, especially in, in men, right? Um, anger is a, it, it protects, it, it builds a wall. It, it helps keep us safe. You know, um, when we're hurting or we're afraid, we respond in anger and it's almost like a, a, a wall we can do to, to keep that wound protected. Um, fear is another one. I mean, think about, uh, and I, mean, I think we mentioned this earlier, but grief is a response to loss, not just to death, right? So with this whole pandemic thing that's happening, there's so much loss that's wrapped in that, right? So some people have lost loved ones. Um, but then in addition to that, they've lost the ability to have a memorial service or lost the yeah. ability to say goodbye. But then separate from that, you've got loss of financial security. You've got loss of jobs. You've got loss of control, loss of freedom. You've got loss of... Um, your identity potentially, all these losses of these things that you're experiencing. And so uh, fear and anxiety is a huge response to loss. In fact, it amplifies the pain. And so um, if you're a naturally anxious person and then you experience loss, you're going to even be more anxious. And so some of the actions that are happening in anger and uh, everything like that is it because of a response to fear and anxiety. I had an experience the other day um, it was the first day going out to the store after kind of the mandate of you should probably wear a mask. Um, and I went out and seeing everybody with that, um, I got so afraid, not so much for me that I would get sick, but for my eight months old son who has some respiratory issues. I'm like, yeah. I couldn't, I mean, we spent all this time and energy and, and prayer to adopt him. And then to find out that I went to the store to buy some toilet paper and I got my son sick. And, you know, I dealt with so many people who had lost children at the, the grief support organization. I just can't even imagine that. And so I just started getting consumed with anxiety of, did I touch this? Did I touch my face? Did I wash my hands right? To the point where it was like crippling. And so I went for a drive and I went, God, I don't know what's going on here, but I, I'm afraid. But 
the loss of like your normal routine, the loss of sense of um, control over all this, it's the anxiety is huge. And then, and then one of the other really prominent ones is the loneliness. You know, obviously if you've lost a spouse, whether it's to death or to divorce, um, loneliness is a huge part of it. The part that we don't think about though is situational loneliness. So loneliness, my wife would describe this on mother's day. Um, she felt incredibly lonely, not because I wasn't with her. Um, but because the person that she's supposed to be celebrating with isn't there playing that role. Um, or when we were going through the infertility and all that stuff, she would talk about how lonely she felt because the one person in her life she wanted to talk about this challenge with was her mom. And so she was feeling both of these losses at the same time. And I was fortunate enough as a husband that I knew that principle, but even in that, it was still hard to go like, well, I'm not enough to meet her needs. And it's not because she wasn't like, Physically, I, I was physically present, but she was feeling lonely because there's a person in her life that was missing. So we don't always look at that part very well. Very well, someone can be very lonely and still be surrounded by people. It's because no one gets them on that level, um, and that often leads to the emptiness. There's so much loss of identity when you lose a loved one. Um, you don't know who you are anymore, and you don't know, like, especially because there's often a title change. I mean, if you've lost your spouse, you go from married to widowed. If you lost a child, you're like, am I still even a parent? If you lost your your parents, the people would carry this title no matter what age. They would still they would still use the phrase orphaned. Um, and so there's so much title and identity changes, you know. And and it could be a title, it could be a role. Hey, I used to be the soccer mom, and now I have no one to drive to soccer games to, right? So that's so hard. And there's this void that becomes a spiritual void because the lack of purpose and the lack of identity and meaning in someone's life. Um, and that's what they don't talk about a lot in some grief support, um, groups, because that can take years to get to, but the, there's science that backs this up. Um, and it talks about like the, the furthest levels of healing happen when you find purpose and meaning again with your, what you've experienced and you invest that into others and going back kind of what we talked about at the very beginning, that, is why it was so vital for me to figure out who I was independent of um, what I was good at, independent of the experiences I'd had or losses I've had, or even the, the, the blessings I have in being married and having a child. I almost said being married with children. And I just thought about Al Bundy and, um, and that wasn't <laughs> going to go well. But the point of it is, there goes, I guess there's the pop culture references. <laughs> um, point of was, is if you don't solve that question, you get stuck. Yeah. Right? It doesn't matter if you're feeling better after loss. If you don't figure out what can I do with what I've been through, that what question, you get stuck. And so by by turning that corner and figuring out, finding, discovering a new identity, a new purpose in life, bringing meaning to these painful experiences. And if we as pastors or caregivers or supporters, social workers can help them on that journey in the right timing, because it's not that they don't need spiritual advice. It's that sometimes it's not time yet. Right, right. right now they just need a hug. And I, I think I remember uh, tweeting that out right after my mom died. The greatest form of theology to someone who's in grief is just a hug. And I think that there's people that need that more than they need a scripture. The scripture will come in time, but I mean, it can be the most prophetic, truthful statement, but the brain is so scrambled for grief, they're not able to receive it. So you have to start with the emotions, start with the compassion. And then when people are ready for it, bring in some of the truth and the principles. But yeah, if we can help guide them towards meaning and purpose and give them opportunities to serve and to, uh, to use what they've been through to help others, um, we're going to transform lives because of that, including the person who's experienced loss. Man, that's so good. That's so good. It makes me think about, we did a few episodes ago, um, talked about 
the book of Ecclesiastes and maybe some insights from psychology and um, the, the process of having our sort of meaning-making systems disoriented and, and what gives a sense, a sense of meaning um, in three tiers, right? There you have coherence, which as you, uh, as a sense that life has a repeatable, discernible pattern, right? And once you find that discernible, repeatable pattern, it helps you find and determine meaning, which is sort of the overarching goal of life. But then you also have your sense of significance, which is kind of where you as an individual fit in that overarching story. And I think one of the things we talked about, we've talked about in the past was how suffering, one of the things it does to disrupt our meaning-making systems is right away it messes with the, the, the sense of coherence that we had, that life has this sort of predictable pattern Right. And that's, I think, even one of the things that's going on with this pandemic right now is it's disrupting people's sense that life had this predictability to it. And now they're looking to make new math make sense. Right. Like yesterday, yeah. it was two plus two equals four. And now two plus two today seems like it equals squirrel. You know, it's like <laughs> I can't I, I can't make sense right. of it. Right. I can't make sense of it. And because of that, I, I lose my sense of meaning. And if I lose my sense of meaning, I lose my sense of significance. <coughs> Excuse me. So, man, I, I just think it's fun even talking about this stuff in different disciplines, too, because you can you can see when the the disciplines talk to each other of theology and philosophy and psychology and clinical insights from social work. And uh, to, to have these disciplines come together, it, it fleshes out this beautiful picture. Um, I want to I want to make sure before you go, Rick, I, I want to share with people a little bit. I think one of the things that sparked the idea of having this conversation together was seeing a, a new venture that you're working on. And I think about how hard it is for children to deal with grief, loss, to process emotions. It's particularly difficult for them. I don't know, maybe adults don't get any better at it, but especially with kids and maybe limited vocabulary. They don't know how to describe it. And you've done this awesome thing that you've just launched on your YouTube channel where you're going through and you're helping children and parents talk about difficult emotions. And you, it's, you're doing such a good job of it because my kids have been locked in watching it um, because you're grabbing these references for using toys. What do they call the they're not bobbleheads. My kids have a ton Funko of them. Pop figures. You'd be so yeah. proud. Justice, my you know, our my oldest, uh, when we go pick these out, he's got a Ted DiBiase, a million dollar man one, right? He goes straight for the eighties and early nineties WWF wrestlers. Like you've done good work, sir. Right? You've done good work. <laughs> you know, most kids like you had a Palpatine one in one of your videos that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's a Star Wars reference, and Justice gets. <laughs> we were at some toy store and he's like, oh, it's Million Dollar Man. I've got to have that one. <laughs> well, I will make sure I created a special episode about being a supportive friend with Al Powell from Die Hard. Uh, I've got a, an Al Powell figure. I have Pee Wee Herman. Uh, I've got uh, Mr. T. <laughs> so I've got a few 80s figures. We'll figure out a way to... I was actually forming a new Avengers lineup. You know, I was like, well, Thanos wiped out all the Avengers yeah. and Captain America needs a new team. So I just started picking up these... Pee Wee Herman characters. comes through the portal. <laughs> so uh, I've got... Yeah, Mr. T, Pee Wee Herman, uh, I've got uh, Bob Ross and also uh, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> I feel like that's a formidable lineup to attack Thanos with. So Captain America's going to have to do some training with them, but I think they so can get the job done. It's great what you're doing because it's funny. I mean, it locks, the, the kids love that stuff. It's a great opportunity for you to demonstrate the, um, the innate sense of comedic timing that you have. But also, 
such a good job of using these references that kids can understand, parents can understand to help them talk about and process difficult feelings. I mean, before we go today, what like what gave you the idea to do that? Um, and yeah, why do you see it as valuable? Me, I think the idea for me is I, I um, it wasn't until 2015 I was actually diagnosed with uh, adult ADHD. And it, it helped me understand so much of the trouble, troubles I had with school and learning and even just self-esteem. And so one of the things that helped me um, process my own stuff was keeping things really simple, taking a complex idea, finding a pattern, making it simple, and allowed me to teach it, to explain it to other people. And that just came because I just couldn't remember the big fancy words. I wasn't good at memorizing things, but if I can come up with a visual or an idea, it allowed me to kind of stay afloat. So I, I got in a lot of trouble, and you, you remember this from our sports days, I got in a lot of trouble for my anger. In fact, there was a nickname I think we had uh, called Chester. <laughs> oh no, here comes Chester, throwing tables and chairs. Separate but, personality. Exactly. Yeah, maybe that's a whole other episode, uh, uh, undiagnosed uh, bipolar. So anyways, um, but uh, I had anger issues. And so now understanding those anger issues, one of my favorite characters growing up was the Hulk. And what better way to help a young person understand anger than by creating this helping them imagine a green rage monster inside of them that wants to come out of them. Um, and, and actually this was, I, I was scared. I used this in a real life situation. We had a young uh, man who, uh, he was a elementary student who was doing a grief activity and drew himself wanting to be hit by a car. And you're just like, okay, what do we do? And so long story short, after getting help and support, I sat down with the, 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 the kid and we talked about anger and I just went, you know, I had a lot of anger too for years. And the thing that's helped me a lot is picturing a thermometer. And I just kind of came up with this on the fly uh, in the sense of explaining it to him. But I went, you know, I had this incredible Hulk rage monster inside of me. And when if I let my anger get to the 10 threshold, I had no way of controlling it. It just came out and I did a lot of destructive things. So it's helped me even as an adult who still has anger issues to process of catching that anger at a much lower level on that thermometer, let's say a four or five, um, where it's more manageable and easier to calm down than it is because if it hits 10, the Hulk's coming out and he's going to level a city. And he kind of snickered because he's like, Hmm. this grown man's talking about the incredible Hulk to me. And I went, you know, is that something that makes sense? I was like, so what, what are some of the things that you can do to calm yourself down if you picture kind of a thermometer? And I went home and I created that thermometer. I was like, I feel like this is a tool that we could all use. And so when I started talking about that, the, this idea of teaching with toys, the first character I thought about was the Incredible Hulk. And so we made that video. And then the, uh, the next one, we created a, a video about fighting fear and, and how do you live with courage. And going back to what, what better way to explain fear and courage to a child or to a parent than Captain America, whose greatest superpower isn't super strength or the ability to fly. It's actually his courage and the shield represents him having courage. And so um, it's really a fun way. I'm working on an episode right now. That's a fun way to kind of explain a really hard topic about self-worth and shame, but in a really lighthearted, fun way. And so I'm really excited to get that video out hopefully the next week or so. But uh, it's been a pleasure and it's really cool to see some of the families that are learning from this because truthfully, they didn't start off as videos for kids. They actually started off as videos for the parents. But using um, these simple ways to have conversations with the kids, I've had a lot of conversations with parents at these grief support seminars, which is where our idea came from, superheroes. They said, you know, I learned just as much about this as, as I think my kid did. 
and we would teach them about the stories of grief and loss that are with some of our favorite comic book characters and how their journey to become a superhero was fueled by the loss they had experienced as a young person. And so you can teach really hard, complex um, emotions to a family in a way that's really approachable and entertaining. I feel like that's going to create a meaningful connection between the parents and the kids or the professional teacher or social worker and the kids that can create a lot, uh, a lot of life change and avoid situations like I grew up in when you didn't know how to talk to you about your emotions yeah. and you thought it was a weakness. Yeah, I want to encourage all you guys. I'll provide a link in the description of this podcast to, to check out Rick's YouTube channel and to see some of those. They're great. Even, you know, my I've got a, our oldest is 11 I, I, and he's still connected with it. Um, you know, we've got a, a nine-year-old and, and our... Uh, and our five-year-old, they 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 loved it too as well, and we got stuff out of it. And that reminded me a lot of me. And you talked about Mister Rogers, but I would think that was one of the best things like Mister Rogers did was that you could watch as a parent with a child and be learning uh, at the same time, you know. And that that's that's really really helpful family communication and education that's that's going on. So th thanks, man. I hope you just keep, keep producing those Rick as much as you have the grace to do that. Uh, but what are some of the other ways that people listening could get connected with you and follow what you're doing? You're a consultant, maybe, you know, they want to hop on a phone call with you. Maybe they're a pastor in a church and they want to improve the way they handle grief in their, in their church community. What are some different ways people could get connected with you? I'll make sure I provide links in the description to all these ways as well. Yeah, I mean, the best way is uh, I just um, I just put up the website. It's rickgutterson.com, uh, R-I-C-K-G-U-T-T-E-R-S-O-H-N.com. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm still kind of building that website. Like I said, I just stepped down uh, January 2020 to become a full-time dad and, and care for my son. So I'm kind of building this, but I really want to keep serving people as best I can and helping these organizations and churches, um, mission-minded uh, places to, to support their people, whether it's providing grief and loss training or support group training, or even helping with the infrastructure of building your board and your finances and stuff. And also they can check me out online, um, you know, Instagram or Twitter at Rick Gutterson. Um, and I'm working on a couple other fun projects, uh, including a podcast and then the YouTube channel. You can search uh, the video series is called Teaching with Toys. Yeah. So you can search for that on YouTube or you can search for my name on YouTube um, and do that. So it's just kind of building from start. But basically, I'm taking I want to take the work that we've been doing for years within the context of the grief support organization, but now provide it in a larger scale and a scope in the midst of also uh, caring for my son and having the flexible schedule that I need. So. Um, but thank you so much, Paul. I've, I've yeah. loved talking with you. It's great to catch up with you. And I'm really proud of what you're doing with the podcast. And it's been a, an absolute blast. Thanks, Rick. It's been a blast to do this too. I hope all of you guys will go and check out. Again, I'll provide links in the description. There's great opportunities for you guys to connect with Rick and the work that he's doing. I totally believe in it. And uh, man, I, I think there's so much stuff that's been really helpful. So many tremendous insights from not just Rick's story and his experiences, but um, just even the professional insights. So if you've gotten a lot out of this podcast today, reach out to Rick on Twitter. You can reach out to me. I, I know we'd both love to hear from you. Even if you have objections, I, we are both, I think, of the temperament that can handle that and love to have conversations with you. And if not, I'll that. process the anger afterwards. <laughs> yeah, that's good. He won't go Hulk on you. No, <laughs> no rage tweeting. Thanks, Rick. All right, take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation today with Rick. Conversations like that and all the episodes that happen on this podcast wouldn't be possible without my friends in the Deep Talks Patreon community who are supporting the creation of this project. 
It's people like Jason N., Luke H., Tim K., and Paul R., who are generous in supporting this work. Thank you guys for your support. If you want to support this podcast, there's a few ways you can do it and support the work that I'm doing. First of all, is you can just leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That's the number one place people go right now still to discover and find new podcasts. So if you leave a review on there, it really helps the odds that someone else might find this podcast and find it to be helpful as well. You can also become a member on the Deep Talks Patreon community. There's different levels of support, and with that come different tiered rewards. We try to put out special Q&A episodes and release some things particular to those in the Deep Talks Patreon community. Uh, I also answer all the messages I get from people in that community. So if you want to become a part, you can start that for as little as $2 a month. And if all listeners did that, it would go a really long way in supporting this podcast and even branching off into some of the other things I want to do to help people see that theology connects to all areas of their life. You can also, if you want to just support this podcast by giving a one-time donation to, you can certainly do that as well. I leave a link to my cash app. So if you want to just do something and say, hey, I really like this episode and I want to bless Paul and I want to bless the work he's doing and bless his family, you can totally do that too. I certainly have no qualms with that. I also want to invite you to participate in dialogue together about the stuff we're talking about in this program. So you can reach out to me on Twitter. I always leave a link to my um, Twitter feed, my to where you can connect with me on Twitter, whatever you call that. And uh, so whether you've got something that really stood out to you, you really enjoyed in today's episode or a previous episode, or maybe you have a question or maybe even a disagreement, feel free to express your disagreements and differences of opinion all about having nuanced, charitable dialogue with people about the stuff that really matters. So feel free to reach out to me on Twitter if you want to connect with me there as well. Thanks again for listening, guys. Next week, we'll be back with another reconstruction story. It's going to be a super fun one. We're going to, um, you're going to meet a new friend here, just like you met Rick today. Probably most of you had no idea who Rick was. I want to introduce you to someone else a friend of mine who was a full-on new age psychedelic day-tripping psychonaut who has quite an incredible story to tell. We're going to talk a bit about psychedelics. That's a question I get from a lot of people, so you're not going to want to miss that episode next week. All right, until next time, we'll talk again soon.